0: My belief in God feels like a ball. Balancing on a triangle. Trying to hold up the questions of life. Hi, everyone. We are in week three of our new teaching series where we've talked about doubts and questions that exist around Christianity. And today I want to talk about what I like to call the Christians are jerks argument. (laughs) I'll phrase it more politely than that. Let's call it I believe in God, but Christians are so intolerant. So about 15 years ago, the Barna Group did a survey in which they asked non-Christian people why they had rejected Christianity. And the top three problems that people had were these. Christians were viewed as anti-homosexual, 91% said that, judgmental, 87%, and 85% said that Christians are hypocritical. So this survey suggests that some people would say that the greatest proof that God doesn't exist is not science, it's not the tough parts of the Bible. The problem is Christians themselves. That Christians undermine the cause that they're trying to advance with their own attitudes and behaviors. Now, for many, some of you right here in this place today, This objection is deeply personal to you. Maybe you were burned personally by a church leader. You were betrayed or or otherwise just turned off by the behavior of someone in your life who claimed to be a Christian. And and you had this realization at some point that if that's what Christianity looks like, I don't want any part of it. And if that's you today, I'm so sorry that that has been your experience of Christianity. And I'm praying that God can, can redeem and restore even that. And I want to thank you for for overcoming all of that painful backstory and having the guts, honestly, to even participate in this gathering today. I understand that you overcame a lot to be here, and I really commend your your spiritual quest. And I pray that you'll find answers in Jesus despite your experience with some of the Christians in your past. You know, it reminds me, Donald, Donald Miller tells a story in his book, Blue Like Jazz, about the time when... He and his Christian friends set up a confession booth in the middle of campus at a very secular, progressive Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Only they switched it up a little bit. When people would come into the booth to confess their sins, to their surprise, Miller and his friends would instead begin to confess to that person the sins of the church and begin to apologize for the pain that the church has caused so many people through history. Some of these encounters ended in tears and emotions and even renewal at that simple power of confession because it's clear that some people who who, who call themselves Christians have done terrible things in the name of Christ. Especially dangerous are the times when Christianity has gotten mixed up in a lust for political power. That, that's actually what concerns me so much about our current climate in America. The evangelical banner is being waved all over the place. Scriptures being taken out of context to justify issues and abuses. It was never meant to justify. And we've just seen historically that whenever Christians get intertwined with political special interests, it ends really badly. And I want to just say that if you're bothered by the hypocrisy that you see in some Christians, you'll be encouraged to know that combating hypocrisy was actually a passion of Jesus as well. But, but what about this intolerance? Intolerance is tricky because Christians are, are called to, to actually hold to certain moral and ethical standards based on the core beliefs of their faith. And so I imagine those of you listening, that, that, that you, you have one of a few different responses when I say the sentence, Christians are intolerant. Some of you say, I wholeheartedly agree, that's why I'll never be one. Like for you, it's not even intolerant, it's, you, you, you see it as hatred. Others say, well, you know, being a Christian means we, we, we don't judge anybody and we just need to accept everybody no matter what. For you, it's not intolerance, it's, it's love. And there are still others of you who wear intolerance like a badge. You say, you're darn right I'm intolerant because you won't find me compromising and being all woke or whatever word you come up with. For you, it's not intolerance, it's compromise. And honestly, we probably have people from all of those opinions joining us today. In fact, right now I'd like to just divide you up into those groups for a Hunger Games style competition for the rest of the service, I'm kidding. But but when we hear Christians are intolerant, we hear it different ways. And so today I want to explore this issue of intolerance. And here's my big idea. Intolerance is a problem, but it's not the main problem. In fact, I want to talk t- t- today about three smaller problems about intolerance before we get to the main problem, and then hopefully some ideas toward a solution. So, so let me start with what I'll call smaller problem number one, and that is this. The definition of tolerance is changing. Which means the definition of someone being intolerant has shifted pretty dramatically also, even a couple times during just our lifetime. I I remember just a few decades ago, let's call it the original definition of tolerance, it went something like this. Uh, Tolerance meant to recognize and respect the beliefs of others as valid without necessarily agreeing with them. So, So it was like, you know, we don't agree with each other. But, but we maintain a humble and respectful attitude toward one another. You, you heard this phrase often after an argument. We'll have to agree to disagree. Remember that? Ah, the good old days. <laughs> There's a newer definition of tolerance that, that, that goes somewhere, something like this. Somewhere in the early 2000s, this shift started to occur that said tolerance meant to affirm that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and truth claims are all equal. So in this definition, you don't just respect people with a different viewpoint as yours. You have to accept their viewpoint as equally true and equally valid to yours, even if those truth claims contradict each other. So for example, it's not just that all religious beliefs are valid and equally protected, for example, under the U.S. Constitution, and and we respectfully disagree with each other. No, you have to believe that all religions are actually the same. In fact, If you try to claim that your religion is different or exclusive or stands apart from others, then people, they're not just agreeing to disagree. The fact that you hold to a belief like that was considered intolerant. Now, there's been one more recent iteration. Let's call it the newest definition of tolerance. And I'm going to express it in the negative. It's don't hold or express a belief that might offend the beliefs or lifestyle of any other person. And there's a list of like marginalized groups of people that seems to be growing by the day that we're not allowed to offend. Nobody can offend. And it used to be that tolerance had to do with the attitude with which we disagree, now, one can't even hold a dissenting belief from kind of the modern secular narrative about things like religion or sexuality or even major world events without being labeled intolerant. I heard Bill Maher talk about this. He's the host of a show on HBO called Real Time, but he used to host a show on ABC called Politically Incorrect. And he's often been asked what the definition was of being Politically correct. And I thought his answer was very insightful. He said, Politically correct is the elevation of sensitivity over truth. I heard him talking about this recently and he shared an example. He said, During COVID, the CDC has confirmed that some 78% of COVID deaths over these past couple of years have been related to obesity. So I'm a big dude, I can talk about this, okay? You would think that any factor that was connected to almost 80% of the people in our country who died from COVID would be all over the news, like all over every government statement that one of the preventative measures that would have been on everyone's lips would be about getting physically healthy, eating right, exercising, taking vitamins, because obesity is such a huge contributing factor to COVID deaths, but why was there total silence? Well, it's because obesity is a sensitive category. There's such a a movement around body positivity and and fat shaming that, that we can't even tell the truth about what's going on. And so if you have to choose between being sensitive or telling the truth, according to this definition, sensitivity has to win. It's the newest definition of tolerance. Don't hold or express a belief that might offend someone. And this is one of many examples of this new definition of tolerance at work. Let me bring it into a church space. Pastor Jason Strand from Minnesota read a comment from an online post about Jesus and the commenter said this, he said that Jesus I believe in wants people to be compassionate toward one another, not judgmental, because of who they love or what lifestyle they choose or which gender they identify as. Who are you to say what's right and wrong? You have no right to say what sin is. Our job is to be compassionate to all, not to be intolerant by talking about sin. And so the concept of sin is a deeply held core belief in Christianity. But just talking about this core belief is considered intolerant according to this newest definition. It's just important to understand that no, no longer is tolerance about the humble attitude with which you hold your beliefs, it's about holding a belief itself. Even if you hold a conviction in the most loving way. Like if you simply tell someone this sentence, like I've found the incredible love of Christ in my life and forgiveness for my sins and my shortcomings. You may legitimately hear back, you are such a hateful bigot. Why, would, why are you so narrow-minded and intolerant? Why? It's because the definition has changed. And that leads me to smaller problem number two. Some people are trying to combat intolerance with more intolerance. So, so, so some of the most intolerant people I know these days are those who are going around screaming about how intolerant everyone is. And, and secularism ha- has become like a new religion of our time with its own ideas about sin and redemption and and excommunication. Mark Sayers lays this out. He says, in this new secular religion, the God of this religion is your true self or your inner self. And you must worship yourself and your own needs and your own desires at all costs. And, and sin in this secular religion is any kind of trauma or any outside force that threatens the happiness of your true self. And so if there are rules, if there are responsibilities that are causing you stress, that's actually like sin. Or if there's some institution out there, whether it's church or family or marriage or government that would impose kind of externally ascribed identities to you, well, that's sin. Any outside voice or authority or tradition that would bring you down or would cause you stress or anxiety or low self-esteem, all of these things must be resisted at all costs. No one gets to tell you what to do except the God of self salvation in this secular system basically comes down to pleasure in the moment. Whatever makes you happy in this moment. And pleasure is always something you need more of. And so it becomes this vicious vicious cycle. It's why you hear stories of people meeting on Tinder and then hooking up. And then the guy's sitting at the end of the bed after the hookup and he's on his phone doing what? He's back on Tinder looking for the next hookup. It's this ongoing quest for pleasure in the moment. And anything or anyone that comes against that quest for pleasure for the God of self must be confronted and resisted. That's the new religion of secularism in our country. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, fundamentalist Christians were the definition of intolerant. Judgmental, angry, self-righteous, puritanical. Anytime someone did or said or believed anything wrong, they would pounce. Jerry Falwell would make his declarations or Pat Robertson would go on the 700 Club. There was even this SNL character created to provide satire for this phenomenon called the church lady. She was, remember this lady, she was very, Dana Carvey, she was very judgmental and confrontational toward anyone who would, you know, who fell outside of her religious bounds. Well, we have a modern secular religion that has a version of their church lady. We now call her Karen. (laughs) Within this new religion of secularism, everyone has to tiptoe to make sure that they don't step out of line. Businesses are being bewitched for the fear of falling out of favor with society and being canceled. You see, in this secular religion, you can, you can live any way you want. You can have sex with whoever you want. The, the God is total unbridled freedom for the self and total pleasure in the moment. But if someone says something wrong, believes the wrong thing, steps out of line on the, uh, the, the leading narratives, like if you have a different opinion about lifestyle choices, about religious convictions, about public health concerns, you will be excommunicated. People will use shame and public disgrace to punish anyone who steps out of line. And listen, as a child of the 80s and having seen how damaging this approach is from the religious perspective, I want to plead with my secular friends to not go down this same intolerant road that you're trying to to, to actually address and correct. Now listen, I'm not denying that Christians can be intolerant and hypocritical. Man, we, we all know that they can be and we have been. Jesus famously said this. He said, take the log out of your own eye before going to try to remove the speck from your brothers. But Christian intolerance can't be combated with secular intolerance. That approach isn't going to work. But that's what seems to be happening. There's one more smaller problem, smaller problem number three, that the goal has become tolerance when it should be reclaiming a concept of truth. You know, one of the reasons that Christians get labeled intolerant is because of this belief that. Jesus is the only way to salvation. It's a belief that's seen as arrogant and and rude, but what if our main goal was not tolerance, but truth? Like, what if we looked at this in a different way? Consider this analogy. Imagine you go to your doctor, and imagine your doctor tells you you're in perfect health, gives you a clean bill of health, he checks everything out, you're on your way with a clean bill. The next day, you're at your house, just walking up the steps, and your heart gives out. You go to the hospital only to find that your arteries were completely clogged and you had a heart attack. Later, you go back to your original doctor and you confront him and you say, listen, why in the world did you tell me that I was in perfect health? And he says, well, yeah, I I did see that your heart was in trouble, but I didn't want to come across as arrogant or intolerant. Yes, I did have the answers that you needed, but, and all that evidence was there that something was wrong with your heart. But sometimes people get offended when I tell them that they should make some changes. I didn't want you to be offended. I want this to be a safe space where you can feel loved and accepted. And you would say, listen, doc, I didn't need tolerance. I didn't need a safe space. I needed you to tell me the truth. See, sometimes the truth sounds narrow-minded, but it might save your life. And if it's true that Jesus has offered to rescue mankind, it's not intolerant to tell people about that. It's actually loving. Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, who himself is an agnostic, famously made the point that that if you really believe that there is a heaven and a hell, if you really believe that there is a way to get to heaven and to stay out of hell, then you should be telling everyone you know about it. In fact, his memorable quote was, how much would you have to hate someone to not tell them? It's like if you found the cure for childhood cancer and you know other families suffering with the same thing, it's an act of love to tell them about the cure if you know the truth. It's loving to tell other people the truth in a loving way. And our society's in a crisis of truth like If truth is relative, as we've been told, then everyone creates their own version of it. There will be no way out of this spiral that we're in of fake news and fact-checking and fact-checking the fact-checkers and then fake-checking the fakers. And the, 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 the way out of this mess that we're in is not just by having everyone be more tolerant of every crazy idea someone can come up with. It's reclaiming a sense of truth that can provide a kind of true north for, for all of us. And that leads me to, to the big problem. Intolerance is part of a universal propensity towards sin. See, this isn't just a Christianity problem. In fact, I think Christianity proposes the best answer, makes the most sense of what's going on. Our world doesn't have an an intolerance problem. We have a sin problem. This goes back to my big idea. Intolerance is a problem, but it's not the main problem. We have a sin issue that is universal, whether you're a Christian or not. You know, it's a popular narrative in our culture to say that that religion is responsible for all the violence in our world. In his book, God is Not Great, atheist Christopher Hitchens contends that religion poisons everything, he says. The violence and hatred in our world arise almost exclusively from religion, which is not unlike racism, but is an enormous multiplier of tribal suspicion and hatred. And Hitchens' solution to this poison that he calls it, the solution is atheism. He claims atheism will remove all of the divisive reasons humankind kills and oppresses. That if we could just get rid of Christianity and other religions in a society, well, then everyone will get along just fine. Unfortunately, Hitchens doesn't seem to be up on his recent history. In fact, some of the most brutal, intolerant, violent actions arose from movements where God was entirely removed from a society, even just in the last hundred years. So, in the name of racial utopia... A movement started called fascism and it ended in Holocaust. In the 30s and 40s, Adolf Hitler killed 6 million Jews and gypsies and homosexuals. In the name of class utopia, a movement started called communism. And for the 36% of millennials in our country who say this past year that they think it would be a good idea for America to try communism, again, some recent history is in order of the impact that communism had on this world. In 1975, Pol Pot and the the Khmer, Khmer Rouge performed genocide on 2 million of their own people in the killing fields of Cambodia. Joseph Stalin's brutal reign around the same time saw upwards of 20 million people killed through mass slayings. Chairman Mao outdid them all by exterminating some 45 to 50 million of his own people in the greatest episode of mass murder ever recorded in the late 50s and early 60s. And so to those who would say Christianity is the problem, I just want to point to these societies where Christianity and God were completely removed from the picture. Did they fare any better? No, they fared far worse You see, the problem is a sin problem. Maybe there's something else going on beyond just our small American myopic view of intolerance. Maybe there's a sin problem that has swept across the whole world, and that is the problem Jesus came to address. And I want you to see how Jesus dealt with this. It's an example of intolerance and the bigger problem of sin. It's over in Luke 9, 53 through 55. Jesus and the boys were in Samaria which is enemy territory. The Jewish people had a a long-standing conflict with the Samaritans, and over and over again, Jesus would show his heart of compassion for these so-called enemies. Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well, for example, is a great example of his posture of love toward his enemies, the Samaritans. And so in Luke 9, the the, the disciple band was at the height of Jesus' popularity. He was drawing huge crowds everywhere he went, Justin Bieber-like crowds. Only in this Samaritan village, They were not receptive to Jesus. They booed and threw tomatoes as he walked through town. And by booed and threw tomatoes, I mean what the Bible says in 953. It says the people did not receive him. And look what happens next. When his disciples, James and John, saw this happening, they weren't used to this kind of a reception. And they said, Lord, do you want us to to tell fire to come down from heaven to consume them? Picture these two meatheads giving high fives to each other, thinking they came up with this brilliant plan. These guys were nicknamed, by the way, the Sons of Thunder, James and John. They they were really feeling themselves on this day, and they thought, you know what? There are there are few problems a good fireball from heaven can't solve, and so they thought they were defending Jesus against his enemies, but they misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. They thought the mission was to dominate. But in verse 55, Jesus shows us, it, it, we, we see his response to their brilliant idea. It says, But he turned to them and rebuked them. Jesus says, Knock it off, guys. That is not what we're doing. This same passage says that, that this happened as Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. Do you know what was in Jerusalem? The cross. He's saying a kingdom of violence, a kingdom of recourse, a kingdom of retribution is not the kind of kingdom I'm running. Don't set out to crush your enemies. Your enemies are not the problem. The problem is sin. And so by resorting to intolerance and violence and paybacks, you guys are demonstrating that you don't understand the gospel at all. You don't understand the cross. I am about to die for everybody, every one of you. And so stop the tribalism. This is a problem only the cross can solve. You see, sin is the universal problem we all have to reckon with. And in light of the fact that sin is the main problem and not intolerance, then how should we act as Christians? Well, I want to close out today by just talking about how we can disagree well. Because as I said earlier, part of reclaiming some sanity in our society is reclaiming the idea that there is such a thing as truth. And in our Christian faith, there are certain tenets that we hold to be true about who Jesus is, about what his death and resurrection means for humanity, about How God's word intersects with our moral and ethical decisions around human life and death and sexuality and money and the treatment of the marginalized. But in light of the fact that everybody has been tainted by sin, including us, how do we approach conversations, for example, where we might be labeled intolerant, where we disagree, Well, for starters, I want to reclaim a variation of the original version of the definition of tolerance and just say that that tolerance is about how you treat people with whom you disagree. Can we just reclaim that much? I want to take you to 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says this. He says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, so how can we disagree? Well, well he sa- says here. First of all, be ready to give an answer. Notice he doesn't say to be ready to give an answer. He just that he says be ready to, to answer for all the hope that people see overflowing out of you. Peter assumes that that people will be asking you why you have so much hope. And, and so let me just say it this way. If you're not regularly fielding questions about your hopefulness, maybe the first step for you isn't crafting your arguments. Maybe it's looking at the kind of life you're living. You see, the reason that some Christians aren't more open to testifying about their hope in Christ is that they don't act very hopeful. But, but look at the second part. He, he says, communicate with gentleness and respect, gentleness and respect. It describes an attitude of not being overly impressed with yourself and then giving dignity to the person that you're talking to. You see, disagreeing well doesn't mean just having the right answers. It means having the right attitude. I read this story recently about back in 2012, Chick-fil-A founder and owner Dan Cathy was asked in an interview a somewhat benign question about his view on marriage. And he answered the interviewer and he said that he believed marriage was between one man and one woman for life. And that simple answer set off a firestorm of backlash and protests all over the globe by LGBTQ activists and and, and others. And the leading opponent was a gay activist named Shane Windmeyer. And in the middle of the mayhem, Kathy ended up contacting Windmeyer to talk and to listen. It started over the phone and then text messages and then eventually it led to a series of, of personal visits. And, and no one would have even probably known about any of this happening except that Windemeyer wrote about it in an article for the Huffington Post. He called it coming out as a friend of Dan Cathy. And I, I wanna quote just a little section of his article. He says, on August 10th, 2012, in the heat of the controversy, I got a surprise call from Dan Cathy. I took the call with great caution. He was going to tear me apart, right? Give me a piece of his mind. Turn his lawyers on me. It is not often that people with deeply held and completely opposing viewpoints actually risk sitting down and listening to one another. Never once, he says, did Dan or anyone from Chick-fil-A ask for us to stop protesting On the contrary, Dan listened intently to our concerns. His demeanor has always been one of kindness and openness. Even when I continued to directly question his public actions and Chick-fil-A's funding decisions, Dan embraced the opportunity to have dialogue and to hear my perspective. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A, but he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. And in that... We had great commonality. We were each entirely ourselves. We both wanted to be respected and for others to understand our views. Neither of us could or would change. It was not possible. We were different, but we were in dialogue, and that was progress. What do we see here? We see a picture from from two people of gentleness and respect. Boy, do we need more of that. Amen. You you know, people often contact me and they'll say, what's Grace's stance on, you know, this or that hot button issue. To be honest, we don't have many official formal stances on much of anything. We try to keep the main thing, the main thing. And I usually respond with something like, you know, two people at Grace agree on, uh, no two people at Grace agree on every issue. Like if we all needed to agree on every issue in order to gather together, I'd be standing up here by myself every week. We don't gather because we agree on everything. We gather because we share a hunger to know Jesus and the life-altering change he seems to make on every life he touches. You know, one of the reasons Christians are labeled intolerant is because so many are are angry and bitter and self-righteous know-it-alls. This is not what we have been called to. Now, let me just say it clearly. Can we just come back to Jesus' vision for his kingdom? You know, Christians are so imperfect because, well everybody's imperfect. We're all in need of grace, that the church is very much a hospital for sinners. It's not a museum for saints, and that's why it's so messy. And on top of that, just, just think about the layers of messiness. Like when the kingdom of God drops into a person's life, God doesn't just leave us where we are, ever. Like all the junk that's gotten buried for years and years, some of you were abused as a child, or you were addicted, or you were selfish or greedy as an adult, or you were addicted to success. And then you meet Jesus and all the stuff kind of starts rising to the top. And God begins to heal you and redeem you and clean house in your life. He starts getting you to a place of, of wholeness. But as that stuff starts coming out, maybe it comes out in life group. Maybe it comes out on one of your ministry teams. There's honesty and there's transparency where it had only been stuffed down before. And there are doubts being expressed and you're finally getting a handle on, you know, your porn or the the booze or there are relational issues that were ignored before that you can't ignore anymore. And and, and listen, if you're new to faith and you walk into a church like this where all that's going on and you're like, man, these people are a disaster. I would say back to you, like back when we were all hiding and pretending to be okay, that was the real disaster. You, You just didn't see it yet. Because you see, as Christ heals us individually and collectively, we're always gonna be in various states of messiness. But it's not a discouraging mess, no. Our mess represents progress. And somewhere along the line, sometimes churches forget that we're hospitals for the broken. We forget that all this is going on in our midst, and we start thinking that we're the judge and jury and executioner to everyone that we come across. We think that our job is like the the sons of thunder to call down God's wrath on everybody and condemn everybody to hell. Listen to what happened to, to Jesus in Luke 5, 30 through 32. The Bible says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The kingdom of Jesus is one where sinners are welcome. And listen, part of those sinners is those who are intolerant. Jesus even loves the most intolerant among us. You want proof? Take the sons of thunder. James ended up being the first apostle, selflessly martyred for his faith. And John, John eventually got nicknamed the apostle of love and his dream was that the church would be a healing community, that everyone who is sick was welcome. If your marriage is a disaster, come right in. Think you're a crappy parent, are you greedy, are you proud, are you rich, poor, gay, straight, depressed, narcissistic, too political, too apathetic to come in, you're all welcome. The rule of the hospital though, when the doctor tells you the truth, You do what he says. See, it's not about tolerance or intolerance. He's interested in healing. So come on in. Everybody's included. And just expect to be changed in the process. Guys, I want to provide a moment as we close today for just some confession and repentance. I want you to ponder this question. Where has intolerance taken root in my heart? Whether that's religious intolerance, maybe it's moral intolerance or political intolerance, selfish intolerance. Jesus started his ministry with one word and that word was repent. And I wanna give you time to do that right now. May we be the people of love and grace that Jesus imagined. May we reclaim his vision that the church would be a hospital for sinners. And though we are chief among them, May Christ's healing balm begin to restore our hearts. I love you guys. Take a moment now, would you, for confession and repentance.